A woman could never do such a thing. Women are delicate and nurturing and kind. Women bring life into this world and take care of those around them. A woman could never commit an act so vile. A woman could never hold so much anger or possess such physical and psychological resolve. A woman is measured. A woman's hands are clean. A woman is calm and dutiful and grateful and pure. A woman would never think to use an axe. A woman couldn't possibly handle the sight of so much blood. A woman would never continue hacking away long after death had announced its presence. A woman couldn't be furious at her life due to years of abuse. A woman quietly accepts when they are cheated out of what is rightfully theirs. A woman will live in an emotional prison because she is told that is where she belongs. A woman will beg for her life even when no one will listen. A woman will profess her innocence even when the gathering crowd chants so loudly to the contrary that it vibrates in her molars. A woman understands that what she is given is merely ashes from which to rise. A woman will crawl through hell if she has to come out on the other side. Hell is familiar. Hell is the least of her worries. Because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. I'm Holly. I'm Leslie. And... We would be dead. While this episode is primarily about Lizzie, you will notice that I always refer to the crime as the Fall River Axe Murders. And I do that because Lizzie was not convicted and because she is misrepresented essentially everywhere in the annals of history. I don't want to cast aspersions on Lizzie just because kids mean-girled her in a schoolyard murder song. And for the record, what the hell kind of parents let their kids say that stuff? <laughs> Get it like, well, they're out of the house. It's fine. I know! Talking about axe murder, get it together, 1892 Fall River. Ugh. Lordy. I've never been to Fall River before, but I am going. That's exciting. Yeah, on October 26th on our way to Salem, because we're going to Salem this year. If uh, any of our fiends live in the Salem area, let me know. I'll be there. Ooh. Um, and on our way there, we're going to stop at the Lizzie Borden house. Okay. So I will definitely have pictures and things for um, you guys, and uh, I'll see what it feels like there. Mm. It's going to be something. But uh, before we get down to business, we have just a few brief announcements, as per usual. First, this week we are recording our recap, review, and reactions to the completely bananas 1980s low-budget, eye-popping horror flop, Sleepaway Camp. Leslie hasn't seen it, you guys. <laughs> We're in for such a treat. That release will come sometime in the next week or so. We haven't decided exactly when, but be on the lookout for a special extra treat. Yay. So that'll be nice. I, th- I think we're doing it differently because 
The other one didn't seem to go over the way we planned. I mean, we just don't know. Nobody said anything, which is fine. Totally fine, fine, you guys. It is a labor-intensive treat. You have to, like, rent a movie and watch. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to make this one easier and see if that works out better. Cool. And let us know. We'll know if you all liked one and not the other. (laughs) (laughs) But we're learning and growing together. It's fine. Second, as our social media followers may have noticed, um, Leslie, John, and I all got lost in the Pine Barrens last week. (laughs) Whoops. Yeah, and we did this all for you, fiends. Honestly, we were planning our trip and simply mistook faded red trail markers for pink ones. (laughs) (laughs) Guys. It was just like an off-red color. It was. The red trail is a mile long and pink is 28 miles. (laughs) It was an honest, simple mistake that anyone would have made. Exactly. We made it out alive, though, thanks to John's orienteering skills and the fact that we like being in each other's company. (laughs) We laughed a lot. Wish we had snacks. (laughs) No. We had snacks later. We did have snacks later. They were the most rewarding snacks in the world. Mm -hmm. This is a mistake that I don't think we could duplicate if we tried. No. Definitely not. Don't worry, patrons. We're Wharton State Forest experts now. Though the experience has left us a little worn and dehydrated. Yes, one would think that a journey through the fire-torn evergreen woods would have hydrated our souls for weeks to come. (laughs) But there's still something missing. Can you feel it, Leslie? I can. I'm I'm a little dry. So parched. That's right. The only thing that can truly keep us going is genuine, old-fashioned. Say it with me. Validation. Validation. <laughs> so please. <coughs> Lisa. That, that was dramatics, not Corona. <laughs> We're fine. Do we still have to say that? We do, right? I think, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so please stop by Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating and or a friendly review. It only takes a second, but it can be positively life-changing for us. And if you would like to go a step further in supporting We Would Be Dead, you can support us on Patreon. Yeah. For a little monthly donation, you will get access to exclusive content, discounts in our merch store, an on-air toast with your name, invitations to exclusive field trips, gifts from your favorite girls, and in the future, much, much more. So what are you waiting for? Let's be best fiends today. Yay. Woo. Third, don't forget to tune in 10 p.m. this Friday, October 16th, for our Facebook Live Campfire Stories featuring our fabulous makeup artist friend, John Radicasa. It's going to be the most fun. I'm so excited. I'm very excited, too. We're going to get dressed up. John's going to do an amazing, um, amazing look for us all. And um, we're going to tell some scary stories. Yes. Which I still need to find my scary story. I'm pretty sure I know which ones I'm doing. Cool. I mean, we planned this out way far in advance, you guys. We're not flying by the seat no, of our No, I've been researching <laughs> for a while. I'm just trying to... Indeed. We're going like pretty pretty full ghost for Halloween. Yes. I think that's mm-hmm. paranormal is... If any month it was appropriate, it's this one. It just seemed right. It did. So come, dress up, take pictures of your costumes and post them everywhere for us. Um, listen along and uh, and let's get scared. I think that's everything. Is that everything, Leslie? Yes. Okay. So then on with the show. On August 4th, 1892, it was a hot day in Fall River, Massachusetts. But as you mentioned earlier, Leslie, not the hottest day. Not the hottest day at all. No. Some, apparently some newspapers reported it as being way hotter than it was. And 92 Second Street was a normally quiet place. The Bordens, who lived there, were not given to hosting gatherings or engaging in frivolity. So it came as quite a surprise when the police and local doctor were seen rushing into the Borden residence at 11 a.m. that morning. 
As it turned out, they were there to confirm the death of the Borden family's patriarch, Andrew, who had been discovered dead and bloody by his youngest daughter, Lizzie. Andrew was found slumped over on the downstairs sitting room sofa, where he had previously been taking a nap. He had received 11 blows to the head and face, one of which cut his eyeball clean in half. (laughs) I hate that fact. I know. His face had been reduced to blood-colored puree. His murder was so recent that when police arrived, blood still ran slowly from his body, dripping rhythmically off the edge of the sofa and into a pool on the floor below. The scene was shocking. Fall River had never known such a sudden and violent crime. And for anyone who doesn't know, once you're dead, you don't actively bleed, really. Hmm. I mean, you might, like, drain, but, like, if you, if you cut a dead body, it doesn't actively bleed. Yeah, I've never been dead, so I don't know. You've seen dead yeah. bodies, though. And I haven't. I just know this because I'm weird. Yeah. I, well, I've only seen dead bodies that have already been drained. Oh, so then you wouldn't know. Yeah, but like if if there was a dead body laying on my floor right now, which there isn't, don't worry. And we just like... Yes, there is. (laughs) There's a dead body. We just like cut its arm. Blood wouldn't like spill out of its arm. Oh. So this is very, very, very recent death if if he's still kind of bleeding. Mm. Poor Lizzie sat in the dining room, the family maid attending to her in shock and grief. Shortly after the police had attended to Andrew, Lizzie asked that they check upstairs for her stepmother as she had not told her anything yet and feared she could not handle being the bearer of such news. Detectives with heavy hearts ascended the stairs, dreading the task of telling Abby Borden that her husband had been violently murdered. But little did they know that they wouldn't need to do that. After ascending the stairs and calling out for Mrs. Borden to no response, this is about midway up the stairs while they're going up there, obviously, like, calling for her. And there are some inconsistencies in this that we'll get into later, but this is how we're going to start out, and then we'll just go from here. Detectives noticed Abby laying in the guest bedroom on the floor, face down in a pool of blood. So the staircase looks directly up into the guest bedroom, and you could see through the doorway underneath the bed to where she was lying on the floor. You have like a very weird but clear perspective. Abby had been the recipient of 18 blows to the back of the head and neck with the same sharp object, and as it would seem, she had died first. The blood around Abby had stopped running and lay in a dark and syrupy mass, pulling away in thread-thin strings when her head was lifted from the floor. Detectives ran down the stairs informing Lizzie that her mother had also been found dead. In response, Lizzie could only say one thing. She's not my mother. She's my stepmother. Mm. Mm-hmm. The investigation that followed and subsequent arrest and trial has gone down as one of the most mysterious and frustrating cases in American true crime history, one that generations to come would know simply by the macabre skipping rope song that had come about because of it. Lizzie Borden took an axe, gave her mother 40 wax. When she saw what she had done, she gave her father 41. Sometimes they switch mother and father. This is Lizzie Borden's legacy. A monster in 22 words. This little rhyme is all most people know of the Fall River Axe murders, and it surely is a compelling image. A young woman, blind with rage and greed, sneaks up on her father and stepmother and murders them in cold blood with an unbelievable amount of axe blows to the head. But this image is problematic in that it leaves out basically the entire story. Mm -hmm. And what little information it does provide is wrong. As we have discovered in just the brief recap, 
of the discovery of Andrew and Abby Borden that I provided, there were only 29 blows total struck. As any preschool mathematician can tell, that's not nearly 81. (laughs) Way less. As for Lizzie, although she went down in history as a murderer, as far as the legal system was concerned, Lizzie was innocent. So why all the hoopla? Why do we still talk about this case to this day? And how did a shy Sunday school teaching spinster end up as the O.J. Simpson of her time? Oh, hoopla. Hoopla. Now that's a fun one. (laughs) I like the word hoodwinked, too. Yes. I'll put that in some stuff, you guys. Don't worry. Today, we will attempt to give you as much information as possible about this infamous event and let you come to your own conclusions. And there is a glut of information. And you cannot go by the original newspaper articles, which I tried to do, but are so sensationalized. Yeah, they really are. That you can't, like, even my recap in the beginning, that I, I, this, that's the information I chose to give you guys going in because... That's probably what you would have read in a newspaper. Even that isn't totally correct, and we'll get into that as we move along. So, let's start by setting the scene. Picture it. Fall River, Massachusetts, August 1892. Oh, you can't, you can't picture that on cue? <laughs> I'm picturing it right now. Are you? Yeah. Okay, uh, for everyone else, I will assist you. Fall River is a rather large and populous city in Bristol County, Massachusetts. In my humble opinion, Fall River, in addition to being one of the oldest colonized locations in the United States, holds the title for most hilarious motto with the aggressively lukewarm, we'll try. (laughs) We'll try. That's their city motto. We'll try. (laughs) We'll try our best, folks. Not even that. Just we'll try. We'll try. I know. (laughs) This came about in the aftermath of the Great Fire of 1843, when Fall River really did need to try. Mm -hmm. But even still, maybe do better for the motto of your entire city. (laughs) That, That stays with you forever. And this city currently houses, may I add, over 80,000 people, according to the 2010 census. In the 1890s, the population was more along the lines of 12,000 people, but still, that's pretty big back then. Mm -hmm. A little country village can live their life by, we'll try, but a major city should probably do a little bit better than that. Yeah, be best. (laughs) Try harder. (laughs) Don't try, do. That's your new motto. I gave it to you. I'm very important. (laughs) Do. (laughs) (laughs) It's just do. Exclamation point. Do. (laughs) The river for which the town is named is the Quakishan. I looked oh. up. Quakishan? Yeah. Yeah, I looked up how to pronounce yes. it and then I forgot it. I know, I just did too. Yeah, I think you're right. Whose name in its indigenous Wampanoag means quite appropriately Falling River. Fall River was officially incorporated in 1854 and profited handsomely from the American Civil War. Having a river can really benefit a city's growth, especially during an industrial revolution. Fall River was, river was home to many grain and textile mills, which eventually led to factories. And this little town that tried was able to use its time and natural resources to build industry from the ground up. Good for you, Fall River. You did try. They did. Aww. If you lived in Fall River in the 1890s, you either lived on the hill with high society in a home that was expansive and outfitted with all the modern conveniences of a rapidly advancing society, or you lived below the hill. And below the hill, that's where the working class lived. And you would, if you lived there, live pretty simply. You were below the swing of technology's forward motion. If you had money of any sort, though, 
you lived on the hill. Because at that point in time, there was a lot of like new gadgets in the household, mm-hmm. which I'm sure that you'll talk about, and I'm very interested to hear. But then again, the 1890s were like this. Some places were sizzling with the newfound electricity and indoor plumbing, and others were dipping buckets into a well. So, Leslie, why don't you give us a little 1892 flavor? I'm, I'm just, just assuming that this afternoon you just happened to be Googling and yeah. you stumbled upon that. So I research the Victorian era often. Oh, um, that's true though, yeah. huh? <laughs> it is true. <laughs> so there was a lot that I just kind of knew, but I tried to um, find something interesting that I wasn't aware of. Oh, good. Something okay. that I could learn from. Tell us. All right, so to start, the 1890s, also known as the mauve decade. (laughs) Mauve. Delightful. (laughs) Yes, because the color, uh, obviously, because, well, I didn't finish that sentence in the writing, so I apologize for that. No worries. I got you. The color mauve uh, was very popular. For a while, purple was supposed to be the color of royalty, but at this time... (laughs) Purple was full of arsenic. I... (laughs) Well, yes, but it was the color of royalty because it, it was, yeah, it was very expensive to make and they didn't have it a lot. Yeah. And, but during this time, that color was becoming more, well, probably because of the arsenic. Yep. So, <laughs> so they were able to make it more so more people could have it. So that's why it was the mauve decade. Well, ma- mauve is like watered down purple. It is, yeah. Well, yeah, they had to cheapen it. Plus, like, <laughs> it was full of arsenic. Yes. <laughs> Is also called the gay 90s. Yes. Yes. That got coined in like the 1920s. It was because it was seen as a decade filled with prosperous comfort. And it was also called the Gilded Age. And this Mm. was a name coined by Mark Twain because even though there was economic growth, there was also a lot of like shady business and crime going on. Um, And I wasn't sure what direction to take here um, in researching, but I figured out a fun little thing. Yes. All right. These are sure signs you're a kid from the 1890s. Oh, I love this. <laughs> you're a kid from the 1890s if your teacher sentenced you to the nose hole for acting out. The nose hole? Yes, the nose hole, Holly. If you were bad, the teacher would instruct you to clasp your hands behind your head and press your nose up against a circle drawn on the blackboard, a.k.a. the nose hole. That's crazy yeah you'd have to hold it there for a couple embarrassing minutes it was horrible put your nose in a hole that's such a weird who thought of that just a dot it wouldn't be in a hole so you draw a little dot and you'd have to hold it there and stay still who thought of that crazy people yeah well it was like the what's that the The dunce dunce cap yeah i love when the guy okay so have you ever heard the cold spring village yes talk where the okay (laughs) so the guy that plays the schoolmaster at our local living history um, museum, Cold Spring Village, is super into it. He's so into it. I He's love it. really serious and really into it. Mm-hmm. And he talks about how like a dunce cap used to be pulled over their face. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times it would be covered in like s- encrusted snot and tears from yeah. the previous child. <laughs> it is the grossest <laughs> image. And my kids were like, what? Like, they so couldn't gross. they couldn't even wrap their brains around it. But he like you can see the little glint in his eye like I'm gonna fuck these kids up right now. <laughs> So that's what they did in the colonial era. So the Victorians were like, well, that seems a little unsanitary. We're going to do a nose hole. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Okay. <laughs> You're a kid from the 1890s if you played anti-over at recess. Anti-over? The rules were simple. Two teams would stand on opposite sides of a building and toss a ball 
ball over the roof, shouting, Ante over! with each serve. It's very similar to volleyball, which hadn't been invented yet. However, this is where I get really excited. Three years later, in 1895, William G. Morgan, a student at my alma mater, Springfield College, yes, in Massachusetts, came up with the idea for a new sport called volleyball. <gasps> Yay! And guess who Morgan was friends with, Holly? I don't know. Tell me. I'm so excited. Oh, just another Springfield College student named James Nainsmith. Oh. I know, right? I'm so excited. <laughs> Guys, Holly can hardly contain herself. Oh, man. <laughs> Do you want to tell the listeners who he is, or should I? I'm going to let you. Okay. James Naismith invented basketball in 1891. And we talked about that before. Yes. You mentioned that in something else. <laughs> oh, it all comes full circle. I love it. Uh, so. Just making up yes. games in Massachusetts. In Springfield Doing College. It. And this yeah. is why they call Springfield a town of firsts, which is a slogan we had a lot of fun with in college. <laughs> oh, no. I bet. Yeah. We'll try. All right. You know you're a... A kid from the 1890s, if you used cocaine to fight toothaches. Uh, I still do this today. I was going to say, <laughs> I I can't comment on that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wish I was a kid in the 1890s. Right? That's my comment. Toothaches are horrible. I bet a little yeah. cocaine oh, was helpful. Yeah. Doesn't it also numb your gums? Yeah. I've actually never done cocaine. I can't tell yes. you if it does or not. That's what I, yeah. That okay. is what I have heard. I guess we're going to have to try. <laughs> It's for research. It's for research purposes. <laughs> you know you're a kid from the 1890s if you never knew if your friend's had if your friend's house was going to have indoor plumbing or not. Yes, this yeah. I did mention okay. because it was like new. Yeah. So flush toilets were definitely around, but less than a quarter of American homes actually included them late in the 19th century, partially because running water hadn't taken off yet in many regions. Right. So like if you lived and that's where the weird, like, discrepancy comes in, where if you lived in somewhere that was industrialized, you probably had all these crazy things like running water and electric and all this stuff. But mm-hmm. if you lived, like, even an hour or two away from that kind of an area, you were in the Old West with an outhouse and yeah. a well. Wild. <laughs> yeah. There's such such a difference. Right. You were a kid in the 1890s if your mom really wanted a Turkish couch. What now? <laughs> Thanks to your good friends at Sears Roebuck Company, Ugh, best Turkish friends. couches turned into a very popular mail order furnishings. And mail order was like very popular at that time because now that we had the railroad, mm. so you could just get a catalog and like order things. It was awesome. The innovation of it all. Are these like fainting couches? Is that what we're talking about? They, yeah, the fainting okay. couches. They had to faint somewhere. <laughs> they did. Their corsets were so damn tight, they just mm. fell over. Floors were not good enough for them. Mm-mm. You can get a concussion that way. <laughs> Um, oh, t- two more. These are mm, <laughs> I want 100 more. These are great. <laughs> you know you're a kid from the 1890s if you heard the terrifying screams of Edison's phonograph dolls. I have heard this doll. Mm-hmm. It is really scary. <laughs> Not all of Thomas Edison's inventions were hits. The short-lived phonograph doll recited pre-recorded nursery rhymes, which were stored on wax records. Oh, God. However, these discs wore out fast. And when they did, the toy released a blood-curdling screech. Parents of traumatized children demanded refunds and forcing Edison to pull the plug. 
I have so much information on Edison's talking doll. If anybody wants to talk about it or know more, <laughs> I know so much about it. I don't remember why, but I do. That's hilarious. <laughs> um, also, the thing with those cylinders is that they were not played at the exact right speed. <gasps> they didn't make words. Okay. They made like this weird either zippity noise or just sounded like they were speaking in tongues. Like a zippity doo da. No, more like <laughs> Oh, wow. Yeah. I will, I'll, I'll put a video. Okay. You're going to hate it. I'm going to hate and it. And regret talking about it more than you've ever regretted talking about anything. I don't want it. They look awful, too. <laughs> They're they so do. scary. They do. It's like a really creepy Samantha doll. Yeah. I mean, they look like a porcelain doll with, like, probably human hair because it's doll wigs back then yeah. were like that. And they were dressed in, like, a pretty dress and an apron. And you can still find them today at Oddities Markets and stuff. Um, it's rare that you find them in clothes. It's rare that you find them with their voice box. It's rare that it's rarer still that you find them with the wax cylinders. You can find pieces, though. They're so unsettling. The fact that you know so much is so funny. It's weird. I know a lot about weird stuff. I know. That's why we're doing this podcast. It is why we're doing this podcast. (laughs) All right. I have one more. You know you're a kid from the 1890s if you couldn't wait to get your first shirt waist blouse. Oh, a shirt waist. Tell me more. In the the 1980s. That's what I wrote. I mean, you'd wear a blouse in the 1980s, <laughs> yeah. too. Just it was, like actually. Little... That is pretty blousey. Yeah, they're just pretty similar. So, yeah. like, you're on point. Don't All worry. Right. In the 1890s, a shirtwaist blouse was similar to a man's tailored suit. But when paired with a skirt, you were no longer a girl, but a trendy woman. <gasps> oh. I'm going to do that myself. Yes. Most uh, children didn't really wear it. It was more like when you turned 15. And you could wear a shirt. With your skirt. <laughs> Before then, topless. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> no, I think it was more like dresses. Like you yeah, couldn't no, do I it like it. cinch it. And, oh, I do have one more. Oh, bring it. Okay. More, more, you know more. you're a kid from the 1890s if happiness was a steel a steel rolling hoop. Oh, God. The timeless game of hoop rolling <laughs> could be challenging. Sticking hoop. <laughs> but wooden hoops made it tougher still because they needed to be repeatedly hit with one stick in order to keep moving but the metal varieties on the other hand could be pushed along more easily making the children more happy gotta love a stick and hoop have you ever played stick and hoop at cold spring village oh all the time it's yeah in mystic oh it, yeah any that. living history museum you can probably play stick and hoop that's what my brother and i always we loved that we'd be out like on our stilts and <laughs> You and Adam, just the most eccentric children, yeah. walking on stilts and stick and hooping a lot. <laughs> we did. We really did. We had so much fun. That if is- I took my kids there now, they'd be like, what the fuck are we doing here? I'm not going to play with a stick and a hoop. I think my kids would be into it. Yours would. Mine would be like, I did it for a minute and I'm done. What's next? Violet would be like, do I get a bonnet to go with my stick and hoop? Yeah. I feel like this needs a costume change. Are we going so- to McDonald's now? They would want that, too. That's all right. (laughs) All right, that's all I have. Those were fun 1890s facts. I like those. So now that you know more about the setting, let's introduce the players. Andrew Jackson Borden was born in 1822 to parents Abraham and Phoebe Borden. Now, it always strikes me that his name is Andrew Jackson. Yes, I know. (laughs) Not the president I would want to be named after, probably. Mm -hmm. But you know what? Whatever. It's fine. Despite carrying with him a prestigious New England name, Andrew was an eighth generation New England was an eighth generation New England Borden. He still grew up relatively poor though. So his family had been in 
just not even just New England in like Fall River for eight mm-hmm. generations. Weren't they, they were like one of the main families mm-hmm. for all the businesses, right? Like the- yes, but at that point in time, they didn't necessarily have a lot of money because he grew up pretty poorly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and by poorly, I mean, like, not a lot of money, not like he was sent to live in a ditch or something. <laughs> Andrew struggled as a young man to make his way in the world by working ver- a variety of jobs before he fell into the business of making furniture. And then subsequently, he made coffins. From the coffin-making business, Andrew was able to parlay his skills and money into a career as an undertaker. Cheery. Now, I'm not so super sure how popular the town undertaker ever really is. Yeah. I don't know if that's the guy you want to see coming, but I can tell you that Andrew was not particularly popular at all. He was known as a generally unfriendly guy. He was a severe penny pincher, not unlike your pre-three ghost Ebenezer Scrooge, or if you want to get a little more literary, Silas Marner. There is a legend in Fall River that if a body wouldn't fit into one of Andrew Borden's coffins, instead of making it appropriately sized, he would simply lop off the feet and make it work. We'll try. (laughs) That's their motto. (laughs) I don't know how much any of you know about folks who think a proper burial is extremely important, but I assure you that including their loved one's feet is high on their list of postmortem demands. (laughs) They want the whole enchilada. The bouncer doesn't let you into their version of heaven footless. And not telling a person's family they were burying an incomplete body was essentially secretly condemning their loved one to purgatory or pre-hell or Jesus' waiting room or whatever they believed at the time. Fill in the gaps however you see fit, but just know that Andrew was doing a bad, bad thing here. Andrew may have worked in a sensitive profession, but clearly his financial ruthlessness knew no bounds. If a family could not pay the post-mortem expenses for their loved one, Andrew would take their property as payment. In this way, he acquired quite a few properties throughout Fall River, and he would then rent them out to collect a tidy profit. Yeah, he's really good at snowballing things, at creating something from nothing. In addition to these occupations, Andrew moved up the financial ladder and seemed to collect jobs and titles as though they were exotic pets. Eventually, Andrew was, quote, president of the Union Savings Bank, director of First National Bank, director of Durfee Safe Deposit and Trust Company, director of Globe Yarn Mill Company, director of Troy Cotton and Woolen Manufacturing Company, and director of Merchants Manufacturing Company. Mm, Well, a title means everything. Yeah, end quote. And that's, that comes with a lot of dollar signs, too. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, while Andrew was climbing the financial ladder and conducting all his underhanded undertaking, he had also managed to get married and start a family. On Christmas Day of 1845, Andrew married a lovely young woman named Sarah Anthony Morse. Andrew and Sarah had three girls. First came Emma Lenore Borden, born in 1851. Next was Alice Esther Borden, who was born in 1856 and lived until just 1858. Alice died of dropsy of the brain, better known in today's terms as hydrocephalus, Hmm. or water on the brain, which we have talked about before, but we're not going to call her the name of the things that had it. The Borden's third and final child, Elizabeth Andrew Lizzie Borden, was born on July 19th, 1860, and we will get back to both Lizzie and 1860 in just a little bit. But for now, we're still on Andrew and Sarah. By all accounts, the four living Bordens lived relatively happily until March 26, 1863, when Sarah passed away due to uterine congestion and spinal disease at just 39 years old. That sounds terrible. Yeah. Now, a word on these things. 
Uterine congestion sounds like a cold right in the baby maker. I was going to say. I know. She had the sniffles down there. No, it isn't that. It does sound like that, though. Well, not as far as I can see. It is most closely related, um, as far as I can research, to a disease that we today call pelvic congestion syndrome, which is a chronic pelvic pain condition in which impaired ovarian veins result in the blood flow the, bl- the blood flowing backwards instead of forwards or up towards the heart. It has oh. also been called varicose veins of the ovaries. Yeah, wow. How gross is, horrible is that? That's so horrible. Right? Can this occur in men? Yes. Not in the ovaries, obviously, but men can have an inflamed pelvis too. In women, it usually comes from childbearing, which was most likely the case with Sarah. The spinal deformities could have been anything from scoliosis to tuberculosis of the spine. I mean, you really have to give me more than just that to go on. And I did Google, like, what spinal deformities are related to pelvic congestion? Nothing. None of them are. Hmm. The nearest I can figure is that her pelvic congestion caused caused a blood clot that ended up in her lungs and killed her. Nothing nefarious, but certainly sad and unexpected. After Sarah's death, the Borden slogged on as a one-parent household. It has been said that Lizzie and Andrew were particularly close, some going as far as to call her his special girl. Gross. Yeah. Emma took on the role of mother to young Lizzie, calling her baby Lizzie until the time of her death, which is kind of cute. That is cute. And weird, but cute too. More on Emma shortly. In June of 1865, however, Andrew would remarry, and this time to a woman named Abby Durfee. Abby was six years younger than Andrew and below them in social standing. While acquaintances will say she was a nice enough woman, the girls never took to her, and she never took to the girls. Though in their youth, they did try. We try. (laughs) As they got older, the girls strongly believed that Abby had only married their father for his money, which by that time was quite abundant. The Bordens were worth far more than most families of the time in Fall River, clocking in at nearly half a million dollars in total worth. Wow. Yes, that is an astronomical sum of money for the time. Though she may have been seen as a gold digger, Abby Borden was, by all accounts, a doting wife to Andrew, though the two never had children of their own. And remember, to an outsider, children would be the only evidence of any kind of sexual or physical relationship between two adults at the time. Or really any time, unless you're into some real off-center stuff. In which case, please make sure you have consent from your audience. Thank you. Anyway, the no kids and possibly no sex factor will become vaguely suspect later, so let's don't forget about it. In 1874, Andrew Borden bought the house on 2nd Street and moved his family in. Abby was perfectly happy with this arrangement, but the girls were not. Remember, they were teens, and therefore, by the standards of the day, may as well have been adults. They were well aware of how much money their father made and wanted to live on the hill with the other aristocrats. I mean, I would too. Mm-hmm. They, they wanted, wanted to wear their shirt blouses. Yeah, they <laughs> the could have waist. a shirt waist. <laughs> they were probably wearing sacks. That's not true. They did have their clothes made. They wanted electricity and indoor plumbing, nice clothing and modern conveniences, and what they got was an austere house with none of those things and eventually a maid. And Andrew, slowly and surely, began devoting his finances to his new wife instead of his daughters. Mm. Yeah. Real Cinderella situation. To an outside eye, it may look as though this is what Abby had intended all along. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tensions between Abby and the girls were always high, but their apex came in 1887 when Andrew purchased a house for his wife, Abby. She had owned half of the property and her half-sister owned the other half, but Abby wanted all of it. And so Andrew bought it for her. The girls were furious, 
as their father had the spare finances to purchase their stepmother an additional home they did not need, but flatly refused to move them into a home on the hill where they could enjoy more modern conveniences and their social standing. Yeah. Dad. It's, I mean, I can see how that's frustrating, though. They really yeah. did live a, a very simple and sparse life for people that had so very much money. Right. It was crazy. Like, you could have an indoor bathroom. You don't need a water closet in the basement and stuff. Oh, well. This caused an enormous fight in the home. And from that period onward, Lizzie would refer to Abby as only Mrs. Borden. Hmm. Previously, she had called her mother, but not after that. So remember, Abby moved into the Borden's household when Lizzie was just, I think, three years old. No, no, sorry. She was four, between four and five. So really, this is the only mother she's going to have memories of. Her mother died when she was very little. Yeah, that's true. So it would make sense that that was, she would have more of an attachment to this woman, but she sure didn't. Well, I would say, because how much older is Emma? I don't know off the top of my head. Uh, Older enough. Right. So I would think that um, like some of that disconnection is also going to be from Emma. Yeah. And so Lizzie may have, even though... Even though Abby would have been the only mom she would have known. Yeah, I think there's like a 10-year difference between the two of them. I think think that Yeah, I think that Emma would have already like ingrained some of that distance to Lizzie to this point being able to do that. Well, also she looks at Emma as a mother. Exactly. Well, that's what I'm saying. So if you have one, you don't need another Mm -hmm. one. Right. So yeah, I mean, all of this makes sense. But this this is a cold move. Ice cold. (laughs) You're going to call your stepmother all of a sudden Mrs. Borden for Ugh. the ne- the last five years that you lived together? Well, don't be shady. Yeah, that's true. Don't be shady. You're right. And I believe that Emma did this same thing. I think she followed suit, but there's no confirmation of that in her testimony, which is where I got this whole story from. It comes okay. directly from Emma's testimony in court. The Borden home was, to say the least, not a happy one. But now let's pivot back to get to know the Borden girls a little better. Emma was older than Lizzie, but let's be honest, we know who the real star of the show is, so we're going to take our cues off Lizzie. As I mentioned before, she was born on July 19th of 1860. So, Leslie, why don't you tell us a little bit about 1860 to get us in that Lizzie frame of mind? Sure. So, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln was president. Well. Isn't that just nice? Honest, Abe. We love Abraham Lincoln. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Massachusetts is the first state to loudly yell, hey, slavery is wrong. We need to get together and end this shit. I love Massachusetts. So by the 1860s, more states were like, yeah, slavery is wrong. And in 1861, we get into the American Civil War. During the Civil War, uh, many of the Union armies, or the Yankees, were using the Henry repeating rifles, which were perfected in the 1960s by Benjamin Henry. That's okay. A cool fact. The um, the Confederates were always like making fun of them for using them, but <laughs> I guess we know who won. The war. Yeah, I was gonna say it didn't really go. <laughs> yeah, super well for them. I wonder when Winchester came into play. We'll do, we'll cover the Winchester house and stuff too, but mm. just a thought. The Pony Express was a mail service delivering messages, newspapers, and mail using relays of horse-mounted riders that operated from April 3rd, 1860 to October 24th, 1861 Hmm. between Missouri and California and the United States of America. So it didn't last too long. Yeah, what a job. Yeah. To ride from Missouri to California? That sounds awful. (laughs) 
It does sound awful. On a horse. But, well, there were, like, relays. So you would, like, hit right. another one and another rider Still. would take it. <laughs> yeah, there was a lot of rules that they had to follow. But, um, and it didn't last long because then Western Union came in. And there was, like, the tele, what did you call it? The, oh, yeah. The wire transfers. Mm-hmm. So they were able to do that. And that just, like, diminished. There was Telegram. also an a American Indian War. Not, like, the, not the American Indian War. But there was one, like, in the middle of all of that. Yeah. One of the um, tribes. Ugh, wars on wars. Was, like, yeah, they were just, like, ugh. And, like, ugh. <laughs> 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 and so that also, like, stalled there. Yikes. <laughs> Their mission. Well, that was I didn't do too much because I did so much for you. Did it's okay. She was born to a tumultuous yeah. time, which mm-hmm. would be appropriate for her. Lizzie and Emma were brought up in a relatively religious atmosphere. They attended Central Congregational Church, which, try as I might, I cannot tell you which particular religion worshipped there. They're Christian. I know that much. It doesn't tell you. Doesn't what say. was it again? Central Congregational Church. Mm. Yeah, I don't know. They were probably in that area. It was probably like a Episcopalian or Methodist kind of church. That sounds right. They weren't Catholics. There's no saint. So. Yeah, it was probably one of the – because most, mo- most of the churches there were like Episcopal churches. Okay. Yeah, you, I mean, like, you guys can look up this church. It does, it t- tell you where it is. It can tell you that they um, shot part of the Aerosmith video crying in there. Nice. Fun info for you. Um, it's a restaurant now, but um, they won't tell you who worships there originally. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, they were. I'm. I would say not Episcopal. necessarily Episcopal, right. but or like Protestant. We're they gonna were go with Protestant. that. As a young woman, Lizzie was very involved in church activities, including teaching Sunday school to children of recent immigrants to the United States, which at the time would have been seen as extremely charitable. Mm-hmm. She was involved in Christian organizations such as the Christian Endeavor Society, which is really just a big youth group for all kinds of Christians to kind of come together and talk about the Lord. Sounds fun. (laughs) Uh, And in this society, she served as secretary treasurer. She also was involved in contemporary social movements like the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Those are fun gals who promoted ending the legal consumption of alcohol and eventually led to prohibition, which went real well for everyone. Sure did. Man alive. I bet they had fun. Yeah. I loved my youth group. Your youth group wasn't like the Women's Christian Temperance Union. No. Well, (laughs) they might have wanted to be. (laughs) (laughs) Lizzie was also a member of the Ladies Fruit and Flower Mission. Oh, I love it. Like a garden club? I don't know. I can't tell you what they did, but it sounds adorable, doesn't it? Yes. Fruit and flower mission? Did they bring fruit and flowers to people they wanted to, like, sp- spread the gospel to? Maybe. Mission? Missionary work is like, let me go to this country and make them see Jesus or whatever. Yeah. What I know about missionary work, I um, <laughs> predominantly know from the Book of Mormons. So. so just keep moving on. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just kidding. That's not it, but some of it. <laughs> Of the two girls, Lizzie was the closer to her father. When she graduated high school, she gave him a gold ring she had always worn. Andrew wore that ring until he died and beyond. He would go on to be buried in it. Was this seen as odd behavior for a father and daughter? Yes, it absolutely was. But hang on to that in the same place you're storing the fact that Andrew and Abby never had their own children. Yes, I know. Save your outrage for just a little bit longer. It should be simmering by now if I'm doing this right. In the days leading up to the murders, tensions between the girls and their father and stepmother had been particularly high. According to the Borden's live-in maid, Bridget Sullivan, the girls had stopped eating dinner with Andrew and Abby altogether. 
So they would just take their meals in another room. Okay. That is frosty. Now, I know I haven't mentioned Bridget up until this point, and she does play a major role in the Borden household and the subsequent investigation of this case, but I strongly believe that she did not have a hand in things other than that of a third-party observer. I'll give you a little bit on Bridget now. She was born in County Cork, Ireland. Bridget was the daughter of Eugene and Margaret Sullivan. She arrived in New York on the SS Republic on May 24th, 1886. In November of 1889, she was hired as a servant to the family of Andrew J. Borden. Lizzie and Emma referred to Bridget as Maggie, though I cannot possibly tell you why, as those two names are not even sort of connected or similar. Hmm. I know, I wondered this. Does, in any of the um, confessions or on the the stand, Mm -hmm. does she say that that was weird for them to call her Maggie? No. There's no mention of it? No, that's just... I wonder if maybe, like, her mom was named it, and maybe that was just her nickname. Oh, no, you you said her parents, right? Yeah, no, they all... No, her mom's name was Margaret, the daughter of Eugene and Margaret Sullivan. Oh, so maybe it was her middle name? Maybe they just called her Maggie. Maybe. The Bordens called her... I know the Bordens call her Maggie, and in all the testimonies, that's what she's referred to as. Yeah. But that's it. Her name was, was Bridget. Anyway, that's... I feel like it was the nickname that she came with. I don't feel like they were like... Yeah, no, okay. Like, I mean, it's just Bridget. always, just always struck me as weird. Maggie. They're not the same. Like, Margaret, I see Maggie. Yeah. Did, do they say her middle name? Sorry, guys. We're going to, like, harp on this. Oh, we're so I just on know Bridget there's, Sullivan There's someone point. else that thought that this was weird, and they were like, oh, the girls were just being mean to her, whereas I was thinking, like, it's probably a middle name that was her nickname. Uh, I, I don't have a middle okay. name on her. That's fine. I, I just have Bridget Sullivan, but she... Um, her mo- that was her mother's name, so you know what? Maybe it was a middle name or something, and that could explain it right there. Good detective work. Thank you. You listened. <laughs> I didn't even absorb what I wrote myself. Huh! So Bridget's responsibilities included cooking, cleaning, and ironing. She was the last person to see Andrew and Abby alive. Ooh. Yeah. People love to make Bridget Lizzie's lover. That's like their favorite thing. The most recent Lizzie movie makes a case for this scenario, including steamy love scenes between the two women. I guess this is interesting. I know. This is interesting to think about and I suppose like sexy to put on the big screen. But there is absolutely no evidence that that was even remotely true. There's also no evidence that it was explicitly untrue either. But if you ask me, it's a real reach. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I have to hear the story. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) There, there just is no more evidence of that. It's just a, a, a theory somebody once pitched and then they were like, well, this would be a good movie, which I'm sure it is. I'm sure it's very interesting. And also, like, there's other evidence that Lizzie might have been a lesbian, but there's there is no there's, there's no bearing on this case whatsoever in her sexual orientation. Like, it doesn't matter. So I didn't really make a big deal about it. Okay. Back to Lizzie. In May of 1892, things had gone from bad to worse. Lizzie had been keeping pigeons in the barn, like wild pigeons, but she had been, like, taking care of them and feeding them and stuff. She had built a roost for them and tended to them quietly on her own time. I think this is so cute. She just had, like, her little pigeons. That is really sweet. One morning, Andrew went into the barn and shot all the pigeons. What? Mm Mm-hmm. Claiming that he thought that they would attract children looking to hunt them. there with his broomstick get off my lawn i know but i mean like people hunt pigeons it's a thing especially back then they're like a little chicken basically but like those were she was had tamed them kind of and made them pets like rehabilitated yeah lizzie was absolutely devastated obviously she built like a whole little roost for them to (laughs) nest in and stuff 
Huh. I killed your friends. <laughs> oh, yeah. You love these things? Let me kill them. <sighs> now, what I have left out about the whole real estate debacle I mentioned previously is that as a little Band-Aid put on the giant wound it created afterwards, Andrew bought the house after Andrew bought the house for Abby. He sold his daughters their own childhood home for a dollar. Okay. So where they lived before they moved to the austere house in Fall River, where they lived with their mother, their real mother, he was like, well, I'll sell you that house for a dollar. Okay. Mm-hmm. He had been using it as a rental property, and they kept it up. But after the pigeoning occurred, it became clear that the girls needed to get away from Fall River for a little while, so they sold their childhood home back to their own father for $5,000. I love it. I know. And then they each went on a two-week vacation to New Bedford. How fun. Yeah. How quaint. (laughs) Though the sisters traveled at the same time, they did not stay together, which is kind of weird. Emma stayed with family, and Lizzie went off on her own. They were just on a journey, Holly. I guess they were. Emma returned home after her trip, but Lizzie elected to stay in a boarding house in Fall River for four more days, not wanting to go back into the toxic atmosphere of her house. We need, like, a transitional time period. I guess so. She got back, and she's like, I can't go back in there yet. I'm just going to stay in a hotel for a little while. Mm -hmm. Now, before I get into a timeline of the events that occurred, I have one more character to introduce, and that would be... John Morse, Emma and Lizzie's mother's brother. So their biological uncle on their mother's side. Okay. John loved his nieces and would periodically come and visit them. They were a link that he still had to his sister, and he made sure to nurture that. On August 3rd, he arrived at the Borden house for a visit, but neither Emma nor Lizzie were home. Emma had gone to Fairhaven to visit friends and have some clothing made. Lizzie was out for the day. John heard Lizzie enter the house that evening while he was sitting in the parlor with her father, but she went straight to bed. So he knew that uh, Emma was out of town, and so he was sitting there talking to Andrew, and he heard the door close, and then like thump, thump, thump up the stairs, and another door close. So he just put two and two together and was like, well, Lizzie's home. I guess I'll see her tomorrow. Not much more is known about John, but he does fit into some theories that we will explore later. So now let's get down to the main event. I'll break down the day of the murders piece by piece, and then we'll get into the investigation before going hog wild on the theories. As I mentioned, on the night of August 3rd, 1892, John Morse had arrived in Fall River and went to the Borden residence. He had a meal with Andrew and Abby, but was not yet able to see either of his nieces. He slept that night in the guest bedroom, keeping the door open all night, as he states in his official testimony. I don't know why he left the door open or why it was important, but he says he did it. In the days leading up to John's visit, the Borden household had all been quite ill due to consuming mutton that had been left out over a period of days in the kitchen. Refrigeration was not what it is now, but I have to think that you knew not to eat spoiled meat. Right. And yet, and it seems perfectly rational that that would have been what made them sick. However, Abby suspected the family had been poisoned by one of their many neighbors who wished Andrew ill. He was not very popular, to say the least. There is documents of Abby, like, being at her friend's house. And in some, they're Lizzie. I don't know why, but in some, they meant they say it's Lizzie talking to a friend, saying, um, like, I think our family has been poisoned. Oh, strange. Yeah, I don't, I, I, what I, I think it was Abby, but some places misrepresent that as being Lizzie. Just in case that's what you read, I understand that. 
I see you. I hear you. Doesn't doesn't Maggie or Bridget, doesn't she um, try to throw out that the mutton was bad too? Well, she she feels ill later too. Oh, okay. I don't know if they threw it all out after that, to be honest with you, but. Well, I don't mean like, oh, sorry, that was like a weird term to say because yeah. it's like throwing it out. But she she says that, no, it wasn't old, I thought. Oh. I saw, I read that I somewhere. Know. Somebody that, said that. Again, there's 800,000 theories. She's just like, I cooked dinner. Like, I wouldn't have left it out. Like. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> possible. But also, cooking and refrigeration, none of that was what we would consider up to par mm-hmm. today. The likelihood of getting some form of spoiled meat at some point in time was kind of high. Right. <laughs> so okay. I, I really don't think that's I'm, – I'm not suspicious of that as much as some other people were. But this is going to come back into play later, so it is worth mentioning. On the morning of August 4th, Bridget Sullivan rose with the sun and got the house ready for the morning, preparing a breakfast of mutton – Jesus Christ, I hope it was different mutton – cakes, bread, coffee, and bananas. Andrew and Abby Borden rose at seven and John Morse shortly after. The three dressed for the day and had breakfast together and then visited in the sitting room for a little while before John headed into town to visit his other niece and nephew. He suspected he'd be back around lunchtime, at which point he hoped to catch with catch up with, quote, Miss Lizzie. Cute. He refers to her as Miss Lizzie in everything. I think it's adorable. At 9 a.m., Andrew Borden left the house to go into town on his morning walk. He had plans to go into town for a shave and collect the rent on one of his properties. Sounds like such a nice life. Doesn't it? (laughs) I know. I'm probably going to get to this house and be like, I would live here. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, Lizzie rose at 8.45 and dressed for the day. She made it down the stairs shortly after um, 8.45 and said good morning to her father, her stepmother, and Bridget. Her uncle had already left. Abby Borden was dusting at the time with a feather duster, and Andrew was on his way out the door. At this time, a few witnesses testified that they saw an unidentified man outside the Borden home approach and then kind of like loiter around in their, on their property. Mrs. Borden informed Lizzie that she had to go upstairs and freshen up the guest room for her uncle. She wanted to put fresh pillowcases on the pillows and dust. She also asked Bridget to wash all the windows inside and out, and Bridget obliged. God, houses must have been so clean back then. That's all you had to do. Now, here's where things get hairy. Lizzie was interviewed by the police dozens of times in various states of distress, and we'll get into that more in a little bit. And so she provided a lot of marginally different answers to the minutia of her day. Now, while this seems suspect, and it may well be, I also need to remind you that people who aren't actually guilty do not mentally document forgettable events with 100% accuracy. Mm -hmm. They just kind of go about their lives and will remember things differently between tellings with things coming back to them differently at different points. Think about how you would retell something that happened last week. It's not going to be the same. It's not going to be precise. You'd probably retell it a little differently every time just because you weren't thinking, well, I got to remember this day. (laughs) It'd be way more exciting than what happened. Exactly. (laughs) Liars though, often have their stories down pat. They have documented in their head what they're going to say, and so they say it the same every single time. Is this true 100% of the time? Of course not. Nothing is true 100% of the time. But it is relatively common behavior and deserves to be reported. Because it is all so weird and hazy, I'm going to give you the most accurate depiction I can put together of the events of that day and not bother with another hour of back and forth. Great. So after Mrs. Borden uh, went upstairs, Lizzie visited the bathroom 
she said, remember, she said she was going up to the guest room to change pillowcases and dust. So Lizzie went to use the water closet in the, she said, in the basement, and then went up to her room to complete a little sewing project. She returned downstairs about a half an hour later and sat at the table reading an old magazine. At approximately 10-ish, 10 and 10.30, depending on the report you read, she went out to the barn to look for some old iron to make a fishing sinker out of. I guess she had planned on going fishing later in the day. While she was in the barn, she ate two pears that she had gathered from a tree on the property, and then she went back into the house. Shortly after this, Andrew Borden arrived home, knocking on the front door so that Bridget would let him in. The door jammed while she was trying to open it, and Bridget swore at the door. So she tried to open it, and it caught. She was like, fuck! (laughs) We get it, Bridget. At this time, Bridget reported to the police that she heard Lizzie laugh at her for saying this, as we both just did, because it's really funny, and that she thought she heard the laughter from Lizzie coming from the stairs behind her. Now, this will prove to be significant, as it would be later discovered that at this point, Abby Borden was already dead, and anybody on the second floor staircase would have been able to see her. Okay. Lizzie, however, reported that Abby is, uh, in, like, in later interviews, that Abby had previously gotten a message from a sick friend, and this message was never recovered, and the sick friend was never identified. And so Lizzie said that, like, oh, she got this note from her sick friend, and she left to go tend to them, so I didn't think she was in the house. Okay. Right. But then she also told the police. Yep. We'll get there. Okay. There's a lot of stories. (laughs) A lot, a lot. Also, uh, a word about doors for a minute. Uh, it, It does seem counterintuitive that you'd have to knock at your own front door all the time. But I don't think this was a lock and key type time. Now, they mentioned their door was like if you closed it hard enough, the latch would like latch. So yeah. it was probably a hook and eye type thing and possibly a deadbolt that you ha- would have to lock from the inside. So it isn't that weird that the the gentleman of the house would come home and knock. The maid would be there to answer. Right. Um. So that's that's what happened. Lizzie stated that she... When her father came home, she went into the sitting room with him and helped him take off his boots and put on his slippers before he laid down on the sofa for a nap, which is really odd because Andrew died with his boots on. They are clearly visible in crime scene photos, as is his coat, which he wore in the August heat just for appearances Mm -hmm. because he wanted to, like, look sharp in his overcoat. And you can see the coat balled up behind his head on the couch. We'll post all these pictures. So maybe that was just something that she has done. Right. And is just like misremembering. Right. Like, this is what I normally do. And in other, uh, when she recounts it again, sometimes she doesn't say that. Mm-hmm. Her information is all over the place. Even same thing with her stepmom. Maybe maybe she did get a note or something. Maybe she left and she's yeah. like freaking maybe. out in her head. I mean, her stepmom definitely, I mean, like I, I can say with relative certainty that Abby Borden did not leave the house right. to tend to a sick friend that day. There was, somebody would have said, that was me. Like, and they, they definitely didn't. That's and true. it was yeah. everywhere. Even if it was like, that was me and it was yesterday. Yeah, somebody would yeah. have come forward and there was nothing. After the boots thing, Lizzie informed Bridget of the boots thing that didn't happen. Lizzie informed Bridget of a sale at a local department store and told her she, if she wanted to go, she could. But Bridget felt unwell, so she was a little sick to her stomach at this point. And went to take a nap in her bedroom instead. Like, maybe stop with the mutton. <laughs> like a plant-based diet might be what they need. I mean, or, or just like some of those pigeons. I don't know. <laughs> Bridget testifies later that she was in her third floor room after that, like when she went up to take a rest, 
just when just before um, 11, 10 a.m., she heard Lizzie call to her from downstairs, Maggie, come quick, father's dead. Someone came in and killed him. Andrew was slumped on the couch in the downstairs sitting room, struck, as I mentioned before, 10 or 11 times, mostly I hear 11, but some people aren't too sure, with a hatchet-like weapon. Detectives estimate his time of death had occurred at approximately 11 a.m. And this puts us back to the beginning of this episode. And I bet you're wondering why on earth, if she thought her stepmother was visiting a sick friend, Lizzie would ask detectives to go look for her. Right. Aren't we all wondering that? Now, this is just one part of the inconsistency that persists throughout this investigation. Though I cannot tell anyone how to handle grief or shock, I can't tell you how I would react or what I would do. People get confused. But there is, it's wildly inconsistent. And there are also some reports that Abby Borden was discovered by Lizzie's friend and one of her neighbors. They were comforting her and they went up to to look for her and they saw her under the bed and then subsequently sent police up there. There are both things committed to, you know, articles or whatever. I mentioned the detectives because it's them who, who matter. It's, it's them seeing her who matter. But Lizzie did ask them, like, oh, can you go find my stepmother or whatever? And then they were like, well, where is she? She said, oh, she went to see a sick friend or she's upstairs or I don't know. There's, like, so many different re- recountings of it. Lizzie Borden's initial answers to the police officer's questions were at times strange and contradictory. She first reported hearing a groan or a scraping noise or a distress call before entering the house. Two hours later, she told the police she had heard nothing and entered the house not realizing that anything was wrong. When asked where her stepmother was, as I said before, she recounted Abby receiving a note asking to visit a sick friend. She also stated that she thought Abby had returned and asked if someone could go upstairs and look for her. Bridget and a neighbor named Mrs. Churchill were halfway up the stairs, their eyes level with the floor, when they looked into the guest room and saw Abby lying face down on the floor. So then again, there's both recountings of this event. Most of the officers who interviewed Lizzie reported that they disliked her attitude. Some said that she was too calm and poised. Despite her strange behavior and inability to answer questions, none of the detectives present, or anybody there for that matter, bothered to check Lizzie or her clothing for bloodstains. So weird. Like, couldn't they just look at her? Well, that's, like, I, that's what I said. There's blood everywhere. I mean, yeah, this is not like a mild murder. I mean, like, you, it was very, very messy. Police did search her room, but just like a surface search. They just kind of like looked around and then walked out. At the trial, they did admit to not doing a proper search because Lizzie said she was not feeling well. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sorry, I'm not feeling well. Can we just, like, take a rain check on that? And they were like, yeah, 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 sure. (laughs) The police were subsequently criticized for their lack of diligence, and rightfully so. I have to say, though, if Lizzie had been covered in blood, somebody would have seen that. And it would have at least been in her hair. That's my thought, There's too. There's no like, way that you can get that off that fast. And it was also, all of these things happened within the matter of, like, a half an hour. Yeah, there's no way. Like, it would still be, like, she'd be stained. Somebody else in the house, like Maggie mm-hmm. or anyone else would have, like, seen these things. Right. Even if she did wash up, like you said, it would have probably been in her hair. Yeah. But nobody looked and nobody reported anything. <laughs> Or, like, somebody would have been, like, she was in the shower, like, I mean, well, they couldn't take, like, a shower. No, they would have had to have bathed somehow. I mean, like, they... That would have taken a long-ass time. One would think, yes. Now, it's not as though one can hide the amount of blood that would have come off 29 hatchet wounds, but 
here we are. So then the police go into the basement where they find two hatchets, two axes, and a hatchet head with a broken handle. The hatchet head was suspected of being the murder weapon as the break in the handle appeared fresh, and the ash and dust on the head, unlike that of the other bladed tools, appeared to have been deliberately applied to it to make it look as though it had been in the basement for a long time. Hmm. However, none of these tools were removed from the house. They just left them there. (laughs) Forensics in the late 1800s were not a precise science. Police also let anyone and everyone walk through crime scenes. Hundreds of people traced, traipsed through that crime scene, and some of them took stuff with them. Because of the mysterious illness that had stricken the household before the murders, the family's milk and Andrew and Abby's stomachs, which were removed during autopsies, performed in the Bornens' dining room on the table, <laughs> which was commonplace back then okay. but is still yeah. shocking every time, were tested for poison, but none was found. But again, if you will recall our poison episode, testing for poisons at this time was neither routine nor always effective. Residents suspected Lizzie, Fall River residents, that is, suspected Lizzie of poisoning because earlier that week she had attempted to buy prussic acid, or prussic acid, one of the two, from a local drugstore in order to clean a sealskin coat. And this is where the media circus really begins. Prussic acid is made from cyanide and therefore could kill someone in a bowel-achingly awful manner. We talked about cyanide death. You would be sick to your stomach. However, what the media failed to mention was that at the time, it actually was used to preserve furs. Okay. So Lizzie's explanation does check out. And partially... The reason that they refused to give any credence to this is because the clerk in the drugstore at the time didn't know this, and so he denied it. He said, no, that wouldn't be used for that purpose. The only reason you would buy it was for pesticide, which is not true, but is what was put on the record. Huh. Yeah. The fact that no cyanide was found in her family system, however, is not a very helpful piece of evidence as cyanide does metabolize very quickly. We talked about that when we talked about poisons too. And it would not necessarily appear in a drug test a few days after consumption, especially an 1890s drug test. And if the person happened to survive, which most people don't, cyanide is not exactly like something you can get through. Most people who are exposed to cyanide die. So now... We move on to Lizzie and Emma's friend, Alice Russell. And Alice is not not a great friend. (laughs) Alice Russell decides to stay with them the night following the murders. Like right after the murders happened and the cops came, Alice Russell came over with, I think, her neighbor, Mrs. Churchill, to be with Lizzie. and, And obviously Emma came home that day too. And their uncle, John Morris, got home shortly after the events occurred. So everybody, like right after this happened, everybody was home. Okay. And there were people in the house. Um, And Alice Russell decides to stay the night with them, probably because Lizzie was freaking out, and that's a good friend thing to do. John Morse decided to sleep in the attic guest room that night because who wants to go back in the room where there's bloody murder all over the place? Thank you. Mm -hmm. Police were stationed around the house the night of August 4th, 4th, during which time an officer said he had seen Lizzie enter the cellar with Alice Russell carrying a kerosene lamp and a slop pail. Like a that's like trash or like lick like mop water or something. He stated he saw both women exit the cellar, after which time Lizzie returned alone. So she went back to the cellar later. Though he was unable to see what she was doing, he stated it appeared like she was bent over the sink. 
So when they say there's like a water closet in the in the basement, that's not indoor plumbing. I might have brought that up incorrectly before. It's like a sink. Right. So they could go downstairs and wash up in the morning or whatever. Um, so if they went there, they might have gone to use the sink together or whatever. But the point is Lizzie was like doing something by herself down there later. And there's they never find out what she was doing. Movies love that point. They love, 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 love that point. But there's no explanation for it. Okay. On August 6th, police conducted a more thorough search of the house, inspecting the sisters' clothing and confiscating the broken-handled hatchet. Finally, take it right away. Why did you wait? <laughs> well, she wasn't feeling well. I, I know. Guys, get out. They're trying, Holly. I guess. That evening, a police officer and the mayor visited the Bordens, and Lizzie was informed that she was a suspect in the murders. Obviously. The next morning, take, things take yet another turn. <laughs> Good old Alice Russell enters the kitchen to find Lizzie tearing up a dress. She explained that she was planning to put it in the fire because it was covered in paint. It was never determined whether it was the dress she had been wearing on the day of the murders or not. And this testimony would really seal the deal for much of the court of public opinion. But in Lizzie's sister Emma's testimony, she claims she had been telling Lizzie to burn the dress for days, as that's how their family just discarded old clothing. Like the, um, prosecutor asks her, didn't you have a rag bag? Wouldn't you have kept this for other things? She said, no, we didn't. We weren't in the practice of doing that. Plus this dress was covered in paint. It was filthy. It was faded. I told her that she needed to just get rid of it. We needed to just incinerate it. That's, that's, was their practice. And Jesus, like (laughs) cheap, dirty, covered in paint. I would burn it too. That's gross. I know. I know. I could just see her, too, like, kind of still freaking out about everything that's happened and yeah. just being, like, just trying to do stuff. And My then sister seeing told me that, to do this. It's a chore I didn't do. Yeah, I can right. see it kind of happening very, like, sad. Like, in a movie scene, it would be, like, yeah. when you'd be, like, crying with her. Yeah. <laughs> so while this, like, will conveniently fit in to look super nefarious, it also isn't. Mm-hmm. So you guys can take that fact Man, as you is, will. I know. It's tough. It's very convoluted. When Alice later informs Lizzie, good friend, that this was the worst thing she could have done. She's like, why'd you do that? That was the dumbest, that was the worst thing you could do. Lizzie responds in bewildered panic. Why didn't you tell me that? Oh my God. I know. She's like, you let me do that. You saw me doing it. You didn't say, hey, maybe don't do that. You just later went on and told the police about it. Well, probably because, so if it was just paint, Alice probably didn't think anything of it until somebody said something like, that was weird. She's like, shit, I guess that could look weird, but it was just paint. Yeah, she did tell her, though, (laughs) that that's the worst, you did the worst thing you could have done. So that's, I think that's how I would have responded if I were Lizzie, too. Like, well, why didn't you stop me? If you saw me doing the worst thing I could have done, you are my friend. You should tell me to knock that off and prove my innocence with that dress. Crappy. Yeah, for sure. So burning this dress, as I said, was nothing out of the ordinary. And framing it was, you could, you could frame it with circumstance and suspicion if you wanted to. Lizzie appeared at the inquest hearing on August 8th. Um, and her request to have her family attorney present was refused under a state statute providing that an, uh, an inquest must be held in private. I don't really know what that means. But in private? Like, she should have representation. She had been prescribed, now this is important, regular doses of morphine during these inquests to calm her nerves. Oh, damn. Mm-hmm. And it is possible that her testimony was affected by this. Possible? 
Um, I would say a hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> Hundy. <laughs> Hundy P. Get out of here. <laughs> Please remember that I said morphine, not chamomile tea. Oh, I, I guess I misunderstood. Yeah, the two were very similar. <laughs> Her behavior was erratic, you think? And she often refused to carry to answer questions even if the answer would be beneficial to her. She contradicted herself a lot and provided alternating accounts of the morning in question. She did things like say she was in the kitchen reading a magazine when her father got home and then say she was in the dining room doing some ironing. That's another thing. For some reason, she was like, I was ironing handkerchiefs. Man, it sounds like she was on morphine. Uh-huh. <laughs> And then she would say she was coming down the stairs. The district attorney was extremely aggressive and confrontational, too, with all of her <laughs> interviews. You just hear her be like, and then I was floating. I was floating up the stairs and down the stairs and all around. Well, she was just panicking. <laughs> I know. She's cracked out of her skull and someone's screaming at her. <laughs> yes, and you know what? I'm going to give... <laughs> so there's a movie about... There's so many Lizzie Borden movies. The most fun one is the Christina Ricci Lifetime one. It is crazy. It has like a rock music backing track and it is so fun. It's not the most accurate necessarily, but it is a great watch. It is we should fun. watch it. All right. Uh-huh. I haven't seen it and I love I love her. Oh, me too. And she plays Lizzie obviously. And when she's being grilled by the detectives, she's just like out of her skull. She's like shaking and freaking out and all cracked out on drugs. So that's the image that you want in your head when you think of Lizzie being interviewed. (laughs) I mean, she plays her as as unbelievably guilty in the end, but it's like really winky and cool. How were you given morphine at that time too? She probably drank it in like laudanum or something. Be funny if she was just sitting there with like a drip. (laughs) (laughs) Another please? Could I have another drop? (laughs) It was also injectable and smokable, but – you would have been given likely a tincture of it, which is what laudanum was. Laudanum was like mm. um, it, opium set in alcohol, grain yeah. alcohol. So Just keep hearing your rap. <laughs> our, our arsenic. <laughs> we would be dead. <laughs> I'm really glad we talked about poison before this, though, because I mentioned so many of them. Yes. But, yeah, she probably would have been drinking it, which which means she probably was kind of drunk, too, on top of that. Oh, my God. Yeah, so she's not in her right mind. Yet she's still not fully confessing. No. So she's, like, drugged. Yeah, and she doesn't confess at all. She okay, just doesn't have— interesting. She just doesn't have, a, like, a consistent story. She never says, I killed them. She right. always says, someone came in and killed them. I was not in the— it was at a time where I wasn't in the room or wasn't in the house, and when I came in, I found my father. Later, other people found Mrs. Borden, which is what she called her, upstairs. Right. So on August 11th, Lizzie was served with a warrant of arrest and jailed. The inquest testimony, the basis for the modern debate regarding her guilt or innocence, was later ruled inadmissible at her trial on June 1893. Yeah, you think? A grand jury began hearing evidence on November 7th, and Borden was indicted on December 2nd. Lizzie's trial took place in New Bedford, her vacation spot. Oh. Ruins the vacation, really. Starting on June 5th, 1893, prosecuting attorneys were Hosea M. Knowlton and future United States Supreme Court Justice William H. Moody. Defending were Andrew V. Jennings, Melvin O. Adams, and former Massachusetts Governor George D. Robinson. Big hitters. Yeah. O.J. Simpson every day, man. Told (laughs) you. 
A prominent point of discussion in the trial or press coverage of it was the hatchet head found in the basement, which was not convincingly demonstrated by the prosecution to be the murder weapon. Prosecutors argued that the killer had removed the handle because it would have been covered in blood. And honestly, where is all this blood? <laughs> there were no trails of it anywhere. It was like there sh- there like wouldn't there have been some sort of footprints or like droplets all over? Well, the or- argument for that is one um, John Morse does say that when he got back and went into the house, which is like shortly after 11, he saw droplets on doorframe, on like the kitchen okay. doorframe from the sitting room. But also the cops came in, everybody came in, nothing was preserved, no crime scene tape is put up, people just walk through it. That's so true. if there were footprints, they very well could have been shuffled away. Or if there was blood on the doorframe, somebody could have put their hand on. I mean, any anything I guess could have happened. But I just feel like there was so these were very bloody crimes that yeah. it would be impossible for it not to have some sort of trail. But they don't find it. Though no bloody clothing was found at the scene, Alice Russell testified on August eighth to the jury about what she had witnessed with Lizzie burning the dress. So they're like, "Oh, there's nothing found." She's like, "Well, I saw." So, <gasps> what a bitch. That's what I'm saying. So she didn't even have to bring it up. No, she chose to. That's why I'm saying she's a shit friend. Because she clearly didn't think that Lizzie was not guilty if she thought it pertinent to mention to the police. Right. And then, because if she saw her burn... Yeah, first she saw her cut it up, and then she saw her burning it in the kitchen stove. So wouldn't she have been like, it was completely bloodied? Like, but she's just like, I just saw her burning a dress. It would have been drenched. Yeah, it would have been. Livid. Yeah. <laughs> yep. This is the dress that Lizzie said she had. It had been ruined when she brushed against paint, and it was all yucky and gross and whatever. During the course of the trial, the defense never attempted to challenge the statement, so they didn't even think that this was something they should be worried about. They're like, "Yeah, people do that. I'm. She did that. I'm not going to say she didn't do it." But we covered that. The dress was apparently gross, and burning it was a thing her family did. Moving on. Lizzie Borden's presence at the home was also a point of dispute during the trial. According to testimony, Bridget Sullivan entered the second floor of the home around 10.58 a.m. and left Lizzie and her father downstairs. Lizzie told several people that at this time, she went into the barn and was not in the house for 20 minutes or possibly a half an hour. Remember, she had to make a sinker and eat some pears. And the timing on this is wildly different in every report. Uh, A man named Hyman Lubinsky testified for the defense that he saw Lizzie Borden leaving the barn at 11.30 a.m. So in the event, in the version of this event that says she went into the barn at 10.30 and stayed there for about a half an hour, well, this checks out. And Charles Gardner, another neighbor, confirmed this time. So two separate people saw Lizzie leave the barn to go back to the house at 11.03. So we can assume pretty much that this chunk of the story is correct. For that half an hour, she went out to the barn. At 11.10, Lizzie called Bridget downstairs and told her that Andrew had been murdered. Now, this means in a seven-minute time, she would have had to have killed her father, called Bridget down, and appeared as though she had not killed her father, and put that hatchet down in the basement. But also would have killed... When would No, her- Abby was killed before. But, when it, but she was in the barn for a half hour. Before that. Oh, okay. So it would have been... Like around 10. Yeah, and then she would have went to the barn. Um, so 11.10, Lizzie called Bridget downstairs, told her Andrew had been murdered, and she did tell Bridget not to enter the room. Instead, Lizzie sent her to get a doctor. And this would have been good manners and quick thinking. There's no need to waste precious time and traumatize the maid. Yeah. She's like, don't look, don't go in there, don't look at that. And it is gross. 
There are crime scene photos. His head is destroyed. It's not like, oh, that's a person that got hurt. It's like that's pulp and a body. Both victims' heads were also removed during the autopsy, which, let me tell you, isn't exactly routine. You don't need to take the whole damn head. They always take the brain out and weigh it and stuff, but you don't have to do that. Then the skulls were admitted as evidence during trial and presented on June 5th, 1893. Now remember, Lizzie's in the courtroom. Upon seeing the skulls of her father and stepmother in court in front of an audience, Lizzie fainted. Wouldn't you? Yes. (laughs) Again, this is absolute theatrics and a total media circus. Don't parade their skulls around in front of her. That is looking for a reaction. The presiding associate justice, Justin Dewey, who had been appointed by Robinson when he was governor, delivered a lengthy summary that supported the defense as his charge to the jury before it was sent to deliberate on June 20th, 1893. After an hour and a half of deliberation, the jury acquitted Lizzie of the murders. Upon exiting the courthouse, she told reporters she was, quote, the happiest woman in the world. Well, yeah, you're not in jail forever. Not like, I got away with it. They're dead. Like, I'm not in jail. I'm not going to be executed. After the trial, the Borden sisters moved into a large, modern house in the Hill neighborhood in Fall River, finally taking the place they always thought they deserved. Around this time, Lizzie began using the name Lizbeth A. Borden. At their new house, which Lizbeth dubbed Maplecroft, which just went up for sale, and everybody in the world told me I should buy. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, guys, I would love to buy it. I cannot afford it. We need more patrons. Yeah, get more patrons, and I will buy Maplecroft, and you can come visit me. I'll have banging Halloween parties. (laughs) For just $100 a month. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, And they had a staff at Maplecroft that included live-in maids, a housekeeper, and coachmen. And they had, like, all the trappings of a fine aristocratic life. Because Abby was ruled to have died before Andrew, as I mentioned, her estate went first to Andrew. Then, after his death, passed to his daughters as part of his estate. Oh, tricky. So the timing is very strategic. And how, Lizzie was, what, 32 when Mm -hmm. this happened? So she's older. No, yeah, no, she's not a kid. Yeah. This is a considerable settlement. However, um, they also paid to settle claims by Abby's family. Despite the acquittal, Lizzie was ostracized by Fall River Society. In 1905, shortly after an argument over a party that Lizzie had given for actress Nance O'Neill, which other people think might be her girlfriend, Mm -hmm. and, like, get it if that's the case. You got yourself a famous actress girlfriend? Good for you. Yeah, girl. So they argued over a party, and then Emma moved out of the house. They never saw each other again. Oh. I know. People like to say that this, like, behavior and all the grandness that they adapted to after the death of Andrew and Abby is confirmation that Lizzie killed her parents because she just wanted to have that kind of life. And maybe it is. But also, this is the behavior of a woman who has been repressed her entire life and was finally set free. This behavior as an action and as a reaction are identical. So who's to say? Everyone. Everyone's to say. Everyone has something to say. Everyone has something to say about it. Lizzie was ill with gallbladder issues for a while at the end of her life, which would have been in 1926, and died of pneumonia on June 1st, 1927, after the gallbladder, this offending gallbladder was removed. Hmm. Surgery was probably not as great then either. 
In Fall River, um, she died in Fall River. Funeral details were not published and few people attended. Nine days later, Lizzie's sister Emma died from chronic nephritis at the age of 76 in a nursing home in Newmarket, New Hampshire. Having moved to this location in 1923 for both health reasons and to avoid renewed publicity following the publication of yet another book about the murders. Hmm. The sisters, neither of whom ever married, were buried side by side in the family plot in Oak Grove Cemetery. So sad. At the time of her death, Lizzie was worth over $250,000, and that is the equivalent of $4,939,000 in 2019 money. Wow. She left $30,000, equivalent to $593,000 in $2,019, to the Fall River Animal Rescue League, and $500, which is equivalent to $10,000, in a trust for perpetual care of her father's grave. Okay. Oof. Her close, just her father, mind you. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Her closest friend and a cousin each received $6,000, which today would be $119,000. Substantial sums at the time of the estate's distribution in 1927, and numerous friends and family members each received between one thousand and five thousand, which would be between twenty, which would be around like twenty thousand dollars, and ninety nine thousand dollars in two thousand and nineteen money. So she dispersed her cash pretty charitably. Wow, I wish I was her friend. Yeah, same. And those are all the events, but none of that feels satisfying, right? No. Who really killed Andrew and Abby Borden? Well, now. Let us explore theories. Ooh. This is where things are going to get a little more loose and discussional. Before I get into all of them and I give you the explanation and the one that I think, what do you think happened, Leslie? Oh, man. Um, Just like gut reaction right now, what do you think? The weird man. Okay. Outside that <laughs> some people saw. Your optimism is always <laughs> is unflinching. Just a random axe killing. So you think it was someone who had some kind of financial dispute with Andrew, possibly. Yeah, or, oh wait, didn't Abby live in another house, you said? Didn't she have her own house? She No, she owned the house, but she didn't live in it. So it was probably okay. a rental property that she was gaining finances off of. I think she was having a dirty affair. Oh! <laughs> and the guy was angry because he couldn't be with her, so he killed her and then killed him. That's a good one. Yeah. She was like in her 60s. Nobody would know. Live your life, girl. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I just don't. I really have no idea. I just don't think that Lizzie did it. I, okay, I, I'm, I'm going to get I, to what I think. Yeah, I, I go back and forth. I don't, I don't feel strong enough that she did. But if she did do it, mm-hmm. then I feel like she had a complete mental break. Yeah. And it happened and then it was done. It was just like out of her brain. Yeah, yeah let me say going into all these theories. I am I am pro Lizzie. I don't think she's a terrible, awful person I, at all. At all. Not even a little bit. I think, I'll tell you what I think in a few minutes. But, like, just putting it out there to begin with, yeah. I, I will not villainize her. Sorry. People like to say horrible things about her and call her names and make fun of her and say stuff. But I don't think that's okay. So, those are good theories. Mm-hmm. I like them a lot. <laughs> Here are some that are documented. One. It was Lizzie, and she acted alone and out of greed. The, the standard theory is that she wanted the money and the prestige, and she, her father and her stepmother were standing in the way of that, and so she killed them, and then after their death, she got that. 
also, so going on that, mm-hmm. the police, they did a shit job. They did. Of they the did do a shit thing. job. So why wouldn't they also do a shit job of taking down confessions? Why wouldn't they have just been like, it was probably her and like geared it in that original I don't know. sense? You know, like there's yeah. so many things that they did wrong. Well, here's the other that- thing. I think this comes back around later, but I'm going to say it now because it's pertinent. The reason Lizzie was acquitted is because all of the jurors said that they just didn't think a woman could have done that. Okay. They just didn't think it was a possibility. (laughs) That makes me angry. I know. I get to that. No, I think Lizzie did do it. I get to that in the wrap-up, but, like, (laughs) the jurors didn't necessarily – I mean, they also didn't think that the axe was – the hatchet was proven to be the murder weapon with enough certainty. And that's on record why they say they acquitted her. But a lot of people – Speculate otherwise. Oh, yeah, wait. So was there blood on that hatchet? No, that's uh, the head? it's just the head. And the head is metal. You'd be able to wash it off. Okay. The wood, however, could have soaked into it and you could have found it. Yeah. So that's why they say it's removed and, and the hatchet handle could have easily been burned. Some people suspect that's what she was doing in the basement. Some people have a lot of theories as to what happens to the hatchet handle. Okay. It was never found. So that's good. Although I think I vaguely remember someone saying it was found on the roof many years later. Yes, I remember that. The handle to the hatchet was found on the roof of the Borden household like many, many, many mm-hmm. years later. Though nothing came of that. Okay. They didn't like DNA test it or anything. Yeah, I totally remember that. Okay. Google that. You should Google that while I'm Googling. talking. Google that because I – it's something I forgot until right now. And maybe I'm thinking of another case because it didn't come up immediately in my research. But I seem to remember that being a thing. Tell me what you find, and I'll, I'll prattle on about something else. Okay. Two, the next theory is that it was still Lizzie, but she was influenced by her sister, Emma. A lot of people say that it was something that Emma masterminded, and she left town while Lizzie executed the crime. So she was kind of the puppet master of the situation, and because she was a maternal figure that um, Lizzie, you know, the maternal figure in Lizzie's life, she did what she was told. So while Lizzie may have been guilty, it wasn't of her own volition. So that's another one. It's kind of not a great one, but it is something that people say. Three, it was Emma that actually committed the crime, and she used Lizzie as her cover-up. A ghost told someone this. I love that I shit you not. (laughs) This theory comes from a Massachusetts woman who wrote a novel about it. She said that Emma's ghost came to her in a dream and explained that she had returned from her little, like, gathering that everyone thought she had went to under in a disguise. So she dressed up as a man, came back into Fall River, snuck around outside, went in, Killed Andrew and Abby, let Lizzie take the fall, went back to where she came from, dressed back as herself, and then arrived back on the scene like, oh, what happened? Oh, my. That's what her ghost told this woman in Massachusetts. And she said that, this, that, that Emma's unhappy ghost had to confess because her sister's life was ruined for it and it was indeed her. Next. It's wild, right? <laughs> also, we, I did find the hatchet thing. Tell me. Okay, so it was it was a young boy okay. who had lost his ball 
And so he went up on mm-hmm. the roof and then he found that hatchet. Mm-hmm. And it was on a it was on one of the buildings that was like on the property okay, of their so house. Okay, so it wasn't the main house. Yeah, not the main house, something like me like backyard or something. And it was like a rusty mm-hmm. um yeah, wooden handle. But and nobody confirmed anything about it. They just found it. Yeah. Right. That's that's what I thought. They're like, we found a thing. It wasn't the handle of the other hatchet. Then it was an, an entirely separate hatchet. Yep. Okay. And it was nothing. Okay. <laughs> yeah, they, didn't, they don't like DNA test it and find everything out. They just say, we found another one and it could have been that. Could have been tricky. Whereas it could have also been whoever the killer was that tossed Flung it, it up, up there. there. Yeah. It was Emma and Drag. Flung it up on the roof. Her ghost told somebody so. Yeah. Like 10 years ago. I mean, maybe maybe it was Emma, and then she was pissed at Lizzie later on in life for, like, not living the, you know, the, the sibling lifestyle that she wanted to. And I don't know. I mean, that's <laughs> it's, it's one theory that is out there. So, where are we? Four, it was John Morse, the uncle. Okay. And a lot of people like this one, too, because he just rolled into town, and they they the reasoning behind this is that he didn't like how his nieces were being treated. Though they're the last living link to his sister, they're not exactly being given their due. They have a really rough time in this household. He waltzes into town, gets rid of the obstacles for them. They can live life the way they want. Okay. Not a lot is known about him either. In in his time, he wasn't really taken seriously as a suspect at all. Some people after the fact just put him in the position of possibly. They also like to mention that it was him because there are a lot of people say that Lizzie and Emma did not have the um, arm strength to do what they did. But they did. 100% they did. I feel like they would have been real sweaty. Yeah. That's not... I mean, if you watch, and I go on to mention this later too, if you watch um, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris's coverage of this, mm-hmm. her show covers the, the Fall River Axe murders, and um, she actually does it on yeah. a ballistics dummy. She, like, uses a hatchet and, and hits it. And so she proves that, you know, she c- could could have done this damage. And it doesn't look easy. No. She does hit it, like, a bunch of times, and it is, like, kind of rough work. And she is splattered with blood all over the place. The blood is blue in this, though. Oh, like you know, they like, do, like, in the commercials? Like, like an old-timey <laughs> tampon commercial. You know, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's another theory, that it was John Morse. Uh, another one is the mysterious man theory. A lot of people say that this was a man who had financial discrepancies with um, Andrew Borden. Some people say that this same guy had visited his house a couple times earlier in the week and that he was being evicted from Mm. one of the residences he was renting from Andrew Borden. And, you know, as I mentioned earlier, Andrew Borden was extremely unrelenting and unsympathetic, so he would not have been helpful with this. He would have just been like, yeah, get the fuck out or pay me. And this guy got real fired up and then just killed some people, just killed him and his wife. That's what I'm sticking with. Okay. And that is just as valid <laughs> as any of the other ones. And then I saved this one for last because this is what I actually believe happened. Okay. Unfortunately, I, I, I think it was Lizzie. But she had spent her life being sexually abused by her father and killed him and Abby in a fugue state, which is what you mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. She killed Andrew for the abuse and Abby for knowing and not saying anything. Mm-hmm. So what holds this theory up so heavily for me is, one, that Andrew and Lizzie had kind of a weird relationship, and people commented on that. She was a special one. She gave him a ring, which is very similar to a wedding ring. When did she give him that? When she graduated from high school. Okay. So she was 18. 
Right. And he wore it forever. Also, a lot of people speculate, like I said, that Abby and Andrew's marriage was kind of like affectionless and sexless. They could have had children when they got married. They didn't. Mm-hmm. So but most people thought, well, why? Why wouldn't you? You could have your own children. Why didn't you? Well, it must be because you're not doing what you do to make children. And people, some people speculate that in frustration, he turned to his daughter because she wouldn't have sex with him. So he found somebody who would. Right. Or, I mean, she could have just been barren. She could have. That's true, too. This is, again, all of this is speculation. There is no proof of anything. He also could have just been a douchebag that would have abused his daughter either way. Right. But I guess that could have also led her to not finding, like not exactly. marrying somebody. Exactly. She she had a very skewed perspective of her relationship with her father because of that. She would have right. her father would have served the husband role in her life in her brain. Okay. So yeah, spinster forever. And the connection to this is that she just snapped her tether and had enough and ended up killing them both. But the reason her recounting of it is so hazy is because she had like a break, like a psychotic or a mental break. And that's um, the state in which she committed these crimes. So she wouldn't really – there is possibility that she did it and she didn't even know what she did. Right, right. So. Yeah. I – don't know if everything I said is 100% fact. I mean, obviously, this is all speculation. But I think that line of thinking makes the most sense to me. It seems like yes. that's probably what happened. And again, as I mentioned before, I am pro-Lizzie. I don't think I – th- I mean, like, if you spent your entire life being raped by your father and then did something awful, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm ever I'm – not, I'm not ever condoning murder. You shouldn't kill people. But – I understand drastic action as a last resort to a life of pain. I feel like you could be guilty and innocent at the same time. Absolutely. I agree there with you. There are times for that. Yes. Yeah. I I either think it has to be something wild, yeah. like just that random person, yep. or, and I said that at the beginning, like a mental break. Yeah, you did. And, Absolutely. And if that is the case, and it could be for various things, it could be sexual, it could be... Um, I don't know. I mean, it's she never looked beat. Like people would have no, commented. There no, had been she other was comments in the town, and um, no, and she saw like a doctor and stuff. Yeah. Like that. I also think that if she had any ill will, like other people in the town would have come forward because everyone loves to gossip. So yeah. there would have been a lot more people being like, "Well, there was this time that she did this weird thing." Like there would have been a lot more of that. sexual assault. Also. Um, or sexual abuse, I should say, also produces, like, very specific mental results. Yes. And mm-hmm. and this falls in with them. Yeah. The way she behaved would. I mean, it's a very secretive. People would mm-hmm. not have to know. I mean, there are plenty of people that go their whole lives being sexually abused, and nobody knows. And also the fact that they wanted their own house and he wouldn't give it to them. Like, so she was still trying, like, her and her sister were trying to get out. No, they weren't. They had that house to rent. They used it as, like, a rental property. It doesn't mention that no, they No, at the really- beginning. At, like, at, at one point, they were like, but we want to, like, live up there, and we want... Oh, like, no, they didn't want their there. own house. They wanted them all to move there together. Oh, okay. They know, but again, that's the kind of thing where you are sympathetic to your captor. Right. It's the same situation where your abuser is also someone you love, and in child right, sex abuse, either way with it's common for that to be extremely confusing. Absolutely. 
And if that's what happened, she would have been groomed for a very long time into that situation and just thought it was normal. And that's probably why Emma stayed there as long as she did with her. Or Emma was going through it too. Right. We don't know. Not everybody reacts to everything in the same way. One of them might have snapped the tether and the other one might have persevered. Trauma is funny that way in that everybody experiences it differently. Mm-hmm. And I believe that that's how she experienced hers and that's how it manifested. Yeah. And I guess that could also help explain to you like when they did take their little vacation yep. that she needed that extra time. It was very hard for her to walk back into that household because she saw what it was like not in it. Right. That would be – that's crazy. Right? Theory, yeah. Yeah. I have heard something similar to that. Or, mm-hmm. well, I I heard mention of that, but like you said, it's just kind of you have to All kind of – All of it is speculative. Exactly. Obviously. Yeah. This happened so long ago. Well, finally, what we'll deal with is where was all the fucking blood? Yes, thank you. Well, let's look back to, um, as I mentioned, Dr. Lindsay Fitzharris's demonstration. Her show covers this murder. And you guys should go watch it. It's called The Curious Life and Death of. It's fan-frickin-tastic. Uh, 10 out of 10 would recommend not being paid just like it. And they have some really interesting theories. First, um, Dr. Fitzharris and the, and the researchers that she works with posit that Lizzie um, when she murdered Andrew, took his coat. She said that it was, that she would have taken it off the back of the sofa and then placed it over herself like a barber's cape or a surgical gown backwards. So if you put your arms into it backwards, it becomes like something that covers the whole front of your body. And her father was bigger than her, and this would have been an, out, an overcoat, so it was long. And she wore that to um, commit Andrew's murder, then took it off, balled it up, and stuffed it over next to him. And you can see in the pictures, it's balled up next to him. Um, and where it would have gotten bloody anyway. So theorists who support this line of thinking say that the coat is clearly visible all balled up in the pictures, but this was very out of character for Andrew Borden. He took great pride in his things and would never have left his fancy overcoat in a ball next to him on the couch. Looks like maybe he could have been like using it as a pillow, but again, that doesn't make any sense. You don't take your nice thing and wad it up to put your head on. At least he didn't. Or maybe he did. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe he did, but this is, again, going with this line yeah, of thinking, yeah, yeah. they say this is what could have happened. Okay. And that routinely, if he came home and took off his coat, he would have draped it over the side. Okay. And I can I can see that. I can get down with that. And also, it does explain it. It explains how she would have been able to keep clean for his. But what about Abby's murder, which was arguably the bloodier of the two and occurred before Andrew's? How would the blood be avoided there? Well, there are those who say that Lizzie was simply wearing that dress that she burned, and maybe she was. But I much prefer the theory that she committed Abby's murder completely naked. Oh. Yep. And then washed herself off, got dressed, and went downstairs to commit some more murders. If she was naked, there would have been nothing to get it on. She could wash herself off. Okay. And she was, she did have dark hair, I believe. I mean, so foreseeably, you wouldn't have seen it if it was in her hair. Right. There are a lot, a lot of factors at play when deciding what you think happened here, for sure. And again, everything I've mentioned that's a theory is just that, a theory. If you want the legal version of what happened, we don't know. All we know is that the court said Lizzie didn't do it, she couldn't have done it, it was somebody else, then they did not try very hard to find that other person. Because once Lizzie was acquitted, they didn't keep investigating this case. Mm-hmm. So some also say the timing with, with Lizzie as the culprit is just too tight. 
she couldn't have killed both her father and Abby in a half an hour's time. That's a lot of work in a hurry. So she would have had to kill Abby totally naked, put her clothes on, go out to the barn, come in when her dad comes home, wait, kill him, and then call for, call for um, Bridget. The jury that acquitted Lizzie stated that they did so, as I mentioned, because they, couldn't, they just could not wrap their brain around a woman committing such a violent crime. At that point in time, women were considered docile and fragile, and this kind of violence was impossible for them to conceive of. Put simply, a woman could never. I don't know, though. You should always think twice about underestimating a woman. Because hell hath no fury like a woman scorned. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Indeed. So that's all my Lizzie facts. Now, I, I am... I am so sure that there is more out there in the world people want to talk about. I'm 150% sure. I have two things. Yeah. Okay. One is um, after all of this, after the trial, there were there was books written. Oh, right? yes. And so I think it was like the first main book that was written about it. Mm-hmm. Lizzie would go out and try to buy all the copies and burn them. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, poor so Lizzie. she probably used a lot of money to buy. By those copies. What a painful thing to have, like, released. I mean, especially if you're going with a theory that I choose to go with. Someone published that? Yeah. And then the other one was that there were bloody rags in a bucket, I think probably by, like, the wash area. And she says, or other people said, that that, it was a bucket used for their, like, when they had their periods. Like, like a menstruation area. And so that wasn't weird. People were like, yes, but... The maid, Maggie, said yeah. that if she had seen those, like, they they were there for a couple days or something. Yuck. And she was just like, if I had seen them, like, I would have washed them. So that was, like, a new – I would have done this laundry. Yeah. And, but I didn't see them, and then I saw them. Huh. And so she's like, I, I think that those were the bloody clothes. Yeah. So that was something that was brought in. And then and that would have been, what, in the basement? I think in the basement. Like, I think there, yeah, I think. Which could have been when she went into the basement alone that night. The police yeah. said they saw her go into the basement alone. Mm-hmm. They said they saw her go into the basement with her shitty friend mm-hmm. and then go back later alone. Yeah. Perhaps that was to bring the bucket of bloody clothes down there. I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean. I yeah. Because there is, on, on that theory, there are, it could definitely be ruled that it was definitely a menstruation thing or. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they could have gone either way. Like, it could have been Maggie being like, I guess I didn't see them, but I think I would have cleaned those. So then, if they were there, did they just disappear? I think that's, yeah. I for, or no, maybe the police went back and, and saw them. Because you, you I could think have, police, no, you could have told it was menstrual I blood, think for the, sure. Yeah. Well, that's why she was like, it definitely was. But again, there was a lot of mess ups in there. Yeah. 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 I just remember reading about that bucket yeah, of, I, like, items. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's a gross standout. I didn't Mm -hmm. didn't come across that one in my research, but I'm so glad you did. Yes. (laughs) But I encourage everybody listening to um, talk to us about it. I'm interested in any other theories or information you have. I'm I'm interested in in all of it. I mean, Lizzie Borden is the first like killer that I remember even knowing about, and so she's probably responsible for some of my interest in this topic. I remember learning about Lizzie in school when I was, like, 10. Maybe that was a choice on the part of my educators. (laughs) No, I remember, yeah. But I was definitely young. I definitely read books about her. I definitely found it fascinating, and I found the process and and the things that happened. Um, So there are definitely a lot of people out out there who are going to know different stuff. 
who are going to disagree with me, who are going to disagree with you, who are going to um, think my information is right or think my information is wrong or think it's interesting or not. But as long as we frame it all as conversation, I, I want to hear all of it. Because really none of us know. Nobody knows. Yeah. Only Lizzie. Only or Lizzie. Or the killer. Nah, or the killer. And they, whoever they are at this point definitely took that to their yeah. grave. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing Lizzie's house, which actually to this day is a bed and breakfast. You can spend the night in Lizzie's house. The house wherein the murders were committed if you want. They have tours and such. I'm going to go on one 100%. Um, and I will stand in the place where these things happened. And I will tell you what that is like. <laughs> When I do that, Leslie's just over there thanking the heavens that she doesn't have to go with me. <laughs> I would take a daytime tour. Yeah, I'm going the daytime. I'm not going in. I would never yeah. go in. Are you kidding? Of course the place is rumored to be atrociously haunted. Yeah. Of course. Of course people are like, yes, Andrew and Abby Borden's unrestful ghosts wander the halls. And they probably do. Like, there's no way that violent of a crime exists without some sort of impression being made on it. Yeah. Why can't they just tell us what happened? Uh, I mean, yeah, you would want that to be the case. But I don't know. Maybe they do. I'm not staying there to find out. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that's all that I have. Are th- those all your things? <laughs> those are all my things. There's yeah. so many things. Um, So let's toast. Okay. Should we toast our patron first? Or should we toast our person first? Let's toast our person okay. and then in the water patron. I'm going to say, and it's controversial, but I'm going to toast Lizzie. Yeah, I don't know who else to toast. I fucking, she went through it, man. Whether you think she was guilty or she wasn't guilty, she, man, she went through it hard. And I think that even though she was guilty, there were other factors at play. Yeah. So I'm going to toast Lizzie for giving us many years of crime inspiration, (laughs) I Mm -hmm. guess. And yeah. Okay. Uh, And and, uh, we have a new patron. Sarah McNerlin. Sarah. We love you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thank you for being a fiend. Leslie has a theme song. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, there's. There's more of that there song. There's more. You can save it for another day if you well, want. Yeah, we'll save it. Maybe if we get more patrons, you'll hear I'll the have full. a full song. Yeah, that's reason enough to donate, everyone. <laughs> get in there. So cheers. Cheers to Sarah. Thank Sarah, did you. Did we clink for her? Yes, clink. Clink. <laughs> um, and if you want to hear your name announced on this super famous podcast, go on over to Patreon and join mm-hmm. the party. Or come with us on our field trip. Yes. And, well, if you can come with us on our field trip, too, if you're a patron. Also, uh, we thought we should mention, if you are a patron who wants to donate a little more anonymously, you don't want to hear your name on air, you can tell us that. It's fine if you don't like your last name. Mm-hmm. Sorry if we already said it. We'll take it off in the future. Um, and, and just just let us know. We don't want to do anything that makes you uncomfortable. We're super grateful for you. Yeah. And if we lived in a tempest of familial darkness and never found our way into the light, we would be dead. Thank you for listening to the We Would Be Dead podcast. Hit subscribe now to never miss an episode. 
Rate and review our show on iTunes. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at WouldBeDeadPod. And join our Facebook group to discuss the podcast and more.